Well, good morning. Welcome you to Greenville Oaks Church of Christ, and it is a good morning to be here, the singing, the time of communion together. I'm excited to share a message with you uh, this morning that I think is uh, especially suited for Christmas time. Let's pray together as we open uh, God's Word this morning. God, I, I give thanks this morning for that baby born so many years ago who upset the expectations of what a Messiah should be, who fled for his life in the midst of cries of mothers in a season of lament, and who continues in some way, God, to give life where there is none. And God, we come together as people who claim that it's because of that baby that we have a hope for life. It's because of that baby that we mourn beside mothers who mourn. It's because of that baby that the world is a different place. And so this morning, God, would you remind us of how powerful this story is and how life-altering it can be, and may we walk out these doors uh, as different people as we remember this story that's so different from the stories that are told in our world. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And yet those phrases have been phrases that have been taken for treason and sedition throughout the world for centuries. Because wrapped up in those phrases that many of us, it rolls off our lips so easily, is this subversive claim that claims something different about the rulers who seem to be in charge. Because when we say Jesus is Lord, what we're saying is there's others who aren't. And so this morning, I want to take a look at that phrase, Jesus is Lord, and how significant that phrase, if you look at the background, is to the story of Christianity, how radical a claim it is still in our world today, and how it's still good news in a whole different way than the world often defines it. If you have your Bibles this morning, let me encourage you to open to the book of 1 Corinthians. I just want to point a, a, a small verse out to you this morning as we get started, then we'll get to the, the Christmas story in a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, in verse 3. Kind of a surprising verse here if you haven't been a part of this for a while. We kind of get used to some stuff that's not so normal, but this is one of those interesting verses that Paul writes. He says, therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've grown up in, in this tradition of Christianity or following Jesus for long, that seems like an odd verse if you think about it, right? I mean, just three simple words, Jesus is Lord, how difficult can that be? But there's something about this phrase that Paul says, it's only by the Holy Spirit that people can actually proclaim this truth and make Jesus the Lord of our lives. So I want to talk about why is that so difficult for us to believe? Why is that difficult to proclaim? Maybe we haven't known all that's wrapped into this phrase. So on this Sunday before Christmas, I want to share with you the good news of Jesus Christ as it would have fully been understood in the first century. And in order for us to know that background, we're going to have to understand how impossible of a claim that would have been in the first century for all of these Jews who are coming to know this Messiah and proclaiming Him as the Messiah and Lord. And to begin that journey this morning, I want to ask you to go back in your life a few years, or maybe it's forward for those of you who are younger in the crowd, but I want to ask you to go back, if you would, to that 10th grade literature class you took. 
Can you, you remember the classroom and all the pictures on the wall? You remember the teacher's name, perhaps? Student that sat to your right or left? I don't know, but hopefully you don't remember the grade in that class if you're anything like me. Tenth grade literature class, I remember reading for the first time William Shakespeare's classic, Julius Caesar. You remember reading that, maybe? I, I don't remember much of it, but there's a phrase I distinctly remember from that. Et tu, Brute, right? If you remember anything, that might be the phrase. And these were the famous last words of a guy who actually lived named Julius Caesar. Now, I'd like to move you down the hallway a little bit, maybe a couple years ahead, from that 10th grade literature class and reading William Shakespeare to your history class in 12th grade, world history. And this Julius Caesar character doesn't just show up as a fictional character from Shakespeare. He's actually a a guy that lived, a powerful ruler in the century that led up to the story of Christmas that we celebrate during this time of year. The story of Julius Caesar, again, is just in these years leading up before the birth of Christ. It's in 44 BC that Julius Caesar is assassinated by those who were in his inner circle, or at least the story goes that we read. You remember Brutus, of course, and Cassius, these characters in the story. You remember some of that scene, perhaps. But as often happens, in this time and age, uh, uh, Julius Caesar was not the only ruler. He was not a dictator of any kind. They didn't have one sole ruler who was on the throne at that time. But those who assassinated him were afraid that might happen. They didn't want power to be tied up in one person. So that's why the assassination occurred, and that's why he had his opponents. And so after that happens, after that occurs in 44 BC, there are others who begin to compete for the throne. And one of those was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. His name was Octavian. He was the heir to the throne that was assumed. But there was this other guy named Mark Antony, and they actually teamed up together, and they went to go avenge the death of Julius Caesar, and Brutus and Cassius were taken care of. But after that happens, they begin to kind of uh, lose their partnership. They begin to vie for the throne together. And so uh, you know the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, perhaps. He, uh, Antony goes off to Egypt and he begins to draw up all this support from the Middle East. And Octavius is ready for a battle to ensue. And finally, in, in a few years after this, down the road, it's been 13 years of civil war that Rome has been involved in. See, Rome had a, a good military, but once you have no enemy to fight, you begin to turn in on yourselves sometimes. And so there was this civil war going on, this competition for the throne. And finally, in a sea battle, about 13 years after the death of Caesar, Octavian's army ends up defeating the army or the navy of, 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 uh, of Antony. And so Antony uh, actually runs away to, to Egypt at the time. He and Cleopatra, that's kind of the end of their life. And we read, hear more about that story, you know, snake or whatever, you know, conspiracy theories. But he dies and then Octavian basically takes the throne. Now, Octavian's name, once he takes the throne, is actually changed to a name you'll probably recognize from the Christmas story. His name is Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus is on the throne in the time leading up to Jesus' birth. And this is where the tie-in comes to the story of Jesus. Because Caesar Augustus is named in this story. But there's also this problem that happens when somebody wins and takes over like this. Because you have supporters that were supporters of Antony and you have supporters who were supporters of Octavian, now Caesar Augustus. So what do you do if you're living in Rome and you're on Antony's side hoping that it'll come through so you can have the cabinet position? you got a couple of options. One option is you can flee, you can run as far away as you possibly can to the edges of the empire and hopefully no one will know who you are. The other option is the option that was taken by a guy named Herod the Great 
who was leading as a, a, a leader in, in Roman Empire at that time, he was a supporter of Antony. And so when this comes up, he's got this question, what am I going to do? And he decides to take the other option. He goes straight to Caesar Augustus, Octavian. And he, he says, okay, you know how loyal I was to Antony. Don't look at my loyalty to him. Look at my loyalty. And this is what I commit to you if you'll allow me to continue to rule. I'll be the best and most loyal ruler you can imagine. So Caesar Augustus allows this. So these two characters that we read about in Scripture, this is the story that sets up for the Christmas story. And these are the rulers that were uh, in charge as Jesus is born into the earth. Uh, and that's what I want to pick up on here is in the Gospel of Luke. I want to pick up on the story uh, in, in Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open with me if you would to Luke chapter 2. We read about these characters that I've just told you about in the history books. Now, in Luke chapter 2, as I read these verses, here's what I would like for you to do. I'd like for you to imagine these words like a, a movie scene, okay? I want you to visually try to come up with the image in your mind. Imagine Luke as a, a movie director who's He's kind of looking at the, the stage and trying to visually kind of represent what's going on in the world this time. And let me read in verse uh, 1 and pick up there. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Now imagine with me this scene, right? It begins and opens with the entire Roman Empire on a map that's spread out. And Caesar Augustus is over this entire land, a massive amount of land, pretty much the known world at that time, at least in the West. As the story goes on, as as this continues, you begin to see that in Luke chapter 2, this Octavian guy, Caesar Augustus, calls for a census to be taken. Now imagine with me what that scene would look like if you look at the dots on a map of these families, because everyone has to go to their own town to register. And so all across the empire, people are leaving the cities they're in to go back to the town of their birth, their hometown town of their fathers and so forth. And this is what happens uh, in this story. And the census does several things. One of the things the census does is it allows uh, Caesar to count all the people in his empire so that he can know the tax base that's there and he can know the fighting men. He's doing an assessment so he can know the power and, and know the resource base he has. We still do this in our own time in many ways, right? Census that comes every 10 years. Well, in this census, this was even more a show of power because you didn't just fill out a form online. You you had to actually go to your hometown. And so this is the way the story works. It's zoomed out and all these people are coming across, going to their hometowns. But then we pick up on a story that's not the large picture. It's as if, it's as if the director of the movie zooms in on this odd little story in the larger picture of this big story. Verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, "'Don't be afraid.' I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
Now, there's this phrase, good news, that shows up in this passage, but I want to give you some context because before Luke appropriates this language of good news to the story of Jesus, Caesar applied this language to the victory over Antony. The good news was this, now we're going to have peace in the land because now the civil war is over. Now you can be assured that the good news will change everyone's life. And it's not an accident that Luke picks up on this language to say, Hey, guess what? There may be a larger story going on, but if you you zero in on this peasant couple, this unmarried couple who's having a baby, there's actually good news here as well. So imagine the camera's focus going from the larger Roman Empire down to this small couple who's moving from one city to another to this small town of Bethlehem. And somehow this is supposed to be good news of great joy for all the people. And this isn't the only term, good news, that the early Christian writers co-opt from the empire. They actually take all of this language that that Herod and Caesar and all these in charge would use for themselves, and they begin to reappropriate it as they write the story of Christianity. It's as if they're saying, yeah, there's a big story going on in the world, and you can claim that's good news, but let me tell you about this little couple. Let me tell you about this small family, this baby that's born, because what's good news isn't so much what Caesar did. What's good news is this baby that's going to change everything. And so this morning I want to invite you away from your literature class and your history class for a moment back to your foreign language class. You remember that one? Was it Latin or Spanish or French? I don't know, sign language perhaps? I want to take you back to that class, but this morning it's not the language you know, it's Greek, okay? I want to share some of these terms that if you you get a picture for this, this can be really big to talk about what the early Christian writers, what the early Christians are doing and what they're proclaiming that seems absurd. When you look at the larger picture, but when you look at what he's doing, it's amazing. So I want to go there for a minute. So the first word I want to point out is the word euangelion. Say that with me this morning, euangelion. Yeah, you kind of got it there. That's good. So euangelion is kind of like the word evangelism. It comes from the same idea. It's the idea of good news. And so this was the word I was telling you about, that beginning with Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperors would often use that language of good news, that when there was a war that was fought and the victory was won, the good news would come back to those to let them know that the victory had been won, that Rome had won. If there was a prince or a child that was born to the Caesar that would one day become the ruler, that was good news. This was the language. They would say, we have a euangelion to share with you, okay? And what the early Christians do is they say, no, 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 like I shared a minute ago, That's not the good news. It's not what Caesar proclaims. The good news is about this tiny family in the midst of this larger picture. If you'd zoom in enough and you take a close look, you'd see that this is actually the good news that comes to the world. Jesus once pronounced the good news in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. What does he say? He says, the time is near, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Which is interesting because he uses the language of kingdom, which is another one of these terms. Basileia. Basileia is this term that means empire or kingdom. So they would have talked about the Roman Empire as the Roman Basileia. It's the kingdom that all that Caesar had taken over and taken charge of. This was the kingdom of Rome. But what the early Christians do and what Jesus does is he uses that language and he says, no, no, no. You think that they're in charge? But in the end, this is the kingdom of God that's advancing and making headway into this larger kingdom. And it would have been crazy. Think about this. Proclaiming the kingdom of God. Who's going to take over Rome? This is a massive enterprise. Rome will probably never come to an end. But what do we see today? The kingdom of God just continues to march on, and the kingdom of Rome is still in our history books. There's other language that is co-opted by these early writers. Uh, Another one is Christos, or Christos. It's just Christ, right? In the Hebrew, this comes from the word Messiah. 
that is actually this term that means king or anointed one. Uh, the image that they often used when it came to the Caesars, and they would call them this. They'd call them the Christos. They would have this image of like the gods dripping down oil from the heavens as if to proclaim, this is the divine one that I've appointed and set aside. This is and somehow they saw the gods choosing Caesars, choosing these people. So they would talk about Christos as these rulers, but what do, they do? what do the early Christians do? They called Jesus, Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It's a title, right? It's a designation. It's to say, this is the king, this is the Messiah, this is the anointed one. God has chosen this one, not the one that everyone else claims to say is chosen. Another term that comes up is theos ho huios. It means son of God. You see Theo, right? Huios' son. It's this idea that, that it was set off. In fact, Caesar Augustus was known as one like a son of God. This was common language in the empire to say, this is the leaders in our people. They're, they're selected. They're dripped on by the gods. They're anointed. And so this would have been seen as Caesar being the son of God. But what's the claim of Christianity? The claim of Christianity is that Jesus is the son of God. Now think how, think how radical this is, this idea. To claim, in the midst of just having a handful of followers in the early centuries, that this small group and band of followers of this Jesus who died, right? It's a footnote in the kingdom of Caesar. That actually all those terms we appropriate for Caesar should be actually claimed for Jesus and for the kingdom of God. Another of those is uh, ecclesia. You've heard this term probably before, right? It means church is how it's translated in, in the New Testament. It's really more an assembly uh, it, literally, it's the called out ones. And in Rome, it would be common for, for certain assemblies to be called out for certain projects for Caesar to set aside. It was kind of a political move to bring these people together like we do in the same way in a representative government. It was a little different, right, of course, with a dictator like Caesar. But that was common to call these called out groups in that time an ecclesia. And what are the early church? What do they call their churches? They call them ecclesias. As if to say, yeah, you call out people for certain purposes and you might worship Caesar as Lord, but the truth is, we're the ecclesia, we're the called out ones. We have a purpose that God has set us out for. You can see this, can't you? I'll go through these a little more quickly. There's a few more I want to share with you. Parousia. Parousia is this term that Christians have talked about for the second coming. Christ's return, his presence here on earth that's promised. Well, the, the, that this would have been seen as the return of Caesar. When Caesar would go off and conquer a far-off land, when he came back home, his presence, his arrival back in the city of Rome, they would have called it the parousia of Caesar. But the early Christians say, no, that's not the most important return you're going to find. The most important return we're going to find is the parousia of Jesus. One day he's going to return, and one day there's a hope there. This word soter, the word for Savior. Caesar was seen as the Savior at that time. He had saved Rome from civil war. But the early Christians say, no, it's not Caesar, it's Jesus who's Soter, who's Savior. Pistis, faith. They would put their faith, their allegiance, their trust in Caesar in those times. And it's that very term that the early Christians say, no, our pistis, our, our, our faith, our hope is actually in God and in Him alone. Proskunesis is another word which means worship. And this would have been common in that time to bow down and give your worship to the emperor, to give your your, your worship to the Caesar who's there at that time. But it's Christians who said, no, we don't give our worship to Caesar. We give our worship to God and to him alone. And the last word I want to share with you is the word kurios, which means Lord. This is what I came to at the beginning of the message. That when Christians cr- claim that Jesus was Lord, it wasn't just a nursery rhyme or a song that we sing that we're so used to singing all these years. Because to proclaim Jesus Lord is to say that Caesar is not. And this is why Christianity is such a, a subversive, treasonous, uh, 
religion in the midst of this empire, this growing group of disciples are trying to live in a different way, trying to proclaim other people Lord other than the people that they're proclaiming Lord at this time. It's a huge thing for them to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And you wonder why it takes the Holy Spirit for these early believers to claim such a thing. Now you see why. It's to say certain things are not and to say that Jesus is. Now I know that's a lot of Greek, but with that context, I want you to listen once more to verses 10 and 11 from Luke chapter 2 and listen to what Luke's doing. He's trying to say something in the midst of this. This is Luke 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you euangelion. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a soter, a Savior, has been born to you. He is the Christos, the Messiah, the Lord, the Kyrios. He's using all these terms that were designated for Caesar. And he's saying, this baby that's born to this young peasant couple that's forced by decree of census to go to another town. If you'd zoom in on the story, this is actually where the action's going on. It's not the census right now. There's a story that's unearthing everything that's going on. What he's basically saying is, these rulers that we proclaim all these things in the Roman Empire, they're charlatans. They're lesser examples of the real reality. They're copies of the real thing. They're artificial. Now in 2015, it doesn't sound crazy to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, or to proclaim that He's Lord over all, that He's the Messiah. Because after all, this thing has kind of grown over the years from the early believers. But imagine living in that first century with how large the empire is, with all its might and all its power and all that it has in its disposal to say, no, 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 it's not Caesar that looks like he's in charge that's really there. It's actually Jesus. You would have been seen as certifiably crazy to believe such a thing. And these people were willing to risk their lives because they saw this resurrected Jesus who had changed everything. It takes an incredible amount of belief to zoom out to the story and see it proclaimed everywhere. This is the good news. This is the Savior. Put your faith in this. No, no, no. Then there's this small band of people that say, turn off the news, would you? Turn off that propaganda that Caesar gives to you. It's actually Jesus that's the one you're to trust in. Who would believe this baby would eventually outlast the Roman Empire. Who would believe such a message? And in the first century, it was treason to claim that Jesus was Lord. It was insane to believe that He was Lord. And in the 21st century America, can't we say it's becoming increasingly more difficult to claim the same thing? I mean, just watch uh, in the next few months as this cycle of election happens. The year to come, the presidential candidates will make some interesting claims. They'll ask you to put your faith and your hope in them to save America. Interesting language. They'll claim that salvation can be found if you vote for them. They'll claim that their presidency will bring good news. It may not be these exact terms, but this language has been persistent throughout history. The people of God over and over again in the midst of those calls have continually said, no, no, no. Good news is not found there. Hope is not found there. Our faith is not put there. Our worship is not given there. Our worship is in God because, church, those are idolatrous claims. And for those of us who've been baptized, we've confessed three words that are still a threat to many around us. And those three words are Jesus is Lord, which means three words that Caesar is not. That means that no ruler can take that role in our lives. We believe that good news is found in the baby and not the emperor. Amen? We believe that the world is a better place, not because of Augustus, but because of baby Jesus. In 2004, there was a presidential election in Ukraine, of all places. And in this election, uh, it was a runoff between two candidates that were pretty tied at the end of the race. 
One's name was Viktor Yashenko, and the other's was Viktor Yanukovych. I think I got that right. Which proves that if your name is Viktor and your last name starts with a Y in Ukraine, you've got a great shot. But this election, as it went on, Yashenko was the outsider who was running against the, the current way the government was being run. He was the outsider challenging the inside candidate. Yanukovych was actually the government-sponsored uh, choice. He was the prime minister of Ukraine at the time. Now, if you think our elections are dirty, then catch this, okay? They start having these elections, the run-up to it, and Yashinko, who's the challenger who's running for president, actually gets poisoned in the midst of this with dioxin poison. His face is disfigured. He's almost, he almost dies in the midst of this attempt to kind of take him out so that the reigning you know, person can continue on. But he powers through this and he decides to keep running anyway. And it's coming up to the day of the election. And Yashinko, the challenger, actually has about a 10% you know, spread beating out Yanukovych. Well, that evening after this race, the, the t- 10% lead was there, but there was an outright fraud. The government had managed to reverse the results so that Yanukovych won. And that evening, the state-run television stations reported this. They said, ladies and gentlemen, we announced the challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, has been decisively defeated. However, the government authorities had not taken into account one feature of Ukrainian television. It was this interpreter that was interpreting through sign language, the message that was being shared over this government-run station. In the lower right-hand corner of that screen, there was a woman who refused to pass out the message that had been passed on by the news station. Instead, this is what she said through her hands. I'm addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Don't believe what they, the authorities, say. They are lying, and I am ashamed to translate these lies. Yashinko is our president. And no one in the studio understood what she was actually signing out. But there were people all across that country who understood, those deaf people who were watching that lower right-hand box in the midst of the larger picture that told a very different story. And this woman, Natalia Dimitrik, led and began what began to be known as the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. And all those who heard this message, they text messaged their friends. And over a series of weeks, a million people gathered into the city of Kiev dressed in orange to challenge and ask for a recount, to ask for another election. And sure enough, the election happened, and Yashinko ended up winning the presidency. Church, sometimes you have to pay attention to the box in the lower right-hand corner rather than the prevailing message of what good news is in our world. Sometimes it's hard to believe because we live in a world that's full of bad news. And if you turn on the TV and watch the news, you'll believe all kinds of things. You'll be drawn to fear. You'll be drawn to all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And the propaganda will tell you over and over again that good news can be found somewhere else, that your security can lie in a 401k that will take care of you. That all, There's all these messages that says another message that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. But in the lower right-hand corner, if you'd zoom into the story, past verses 1 through 3, and you'd pay attention to 4 through 12, you'd begin to realize that there's another story that's at play that is actually the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe at Christmas this is relevant. Because in the midst of our world, we hear about wars on Christmas and we hear about all kinds of challenges that are going on and we hear about all these violence and difficulty. We hear about bad news more than we do good news. The church, I'm here to proclaim what's been proclaimed for centuries. Jesus is Lord. 
He's our Savior. We can put our faith in Him. He will come through. Despite what all the other stories will tell you and all the other people that people want you to put your hope in, He's the only one that's able to hold on to that. They can, can, can bear up under that. They can actually share that good news. Good news was found in the smaller story, the zoomed-in story of Luke 2, not the broader story about a census. The problem is it's hard to believe that, isn't it? Because if you look at history books, Caesar is the main guy that's written about, Caesar Augustus. Jesus is just a footnote in most of those stories other than the Bible. And you can see how unbelievable this would have been in the first century as we've talked about. But the fact remains that 2,000 years after his birth, when you open your calendar, you unfold the newspaper, you write a check, every time you write that date, it's a hinge that goes back to Jesus Christ, not Nero, not Augustus, not Herod. Now, the hinge of history between B.C. and A.D. happens because of the birth of a baby that's actually the good news, because Nero died in the year of our Lord, 68. Napoleon died in the year of our Lord, 1821. Hitler died in the year of our Lord, 1945. They will always be remembered with the numbers on their tombstone, not in relation to anything they did, but in relation to the king who's the king above all kings. It's hard to believe this, church. It's hard to believe. It's a small story. It's in the lower right-hand corner, and there's so much more to believe. But pay attention to this. We name our kids names like Joseph and Mary, don't we? Luke and Matthew. We name our dogs and our pizza joints and our casinos after Herod and Caesar. In the first century, it would have been insane to think that would be the case. But Jesus has forever altered and changed our world. What I proclaim this morning is the good news. He is Lord. You can put your trust and your hope in Him. Let's pray as we close this morning. God, we thank you so much for this good news. We need good news in the midst of a world that's full of bad, in the midst of a world that's full of propaganda to say that our security and our identity can be found in other things. And we want to call those this morning idols, God. They're good things. They're just not the best of things. They're not what we can base anything on, God. They're, they're things that moth and rust destroy. So God, this morning we root ourselves again in a story about a peasant family in the midst of a census. And we root ourselves in the story of Jesus Christ who we believe to be the Messiah and the Savior. We put our faith in Him. We worship Him and we worship You. We thank You for this good news this Christmas. As we leave today, God, may we believe in that story in the midst of all kinds of screens that will tell us otherwise. We love You, God. And it's because of Jesus and through Jesus that we offer this prayer. Amen.